All right, we are beginning a brand new series called Treasure in Heaven. Treasure in Heaven. This is part one, God or Mammon. Uh, several years ago, Kelsey and I went to a church planting assessment. I've talked about it before. It's kind of where they put you through the ringer and they ask you about everything to see if you're prepared or capable of uh, leading a church plant. And they gave us back a report that sort of evaluated us in every sphere of life. And one of the spheres of life was when it came to money and finances. Now, we scored really highly in a lot of areas, but one of the areas of concern from them was that they said I had an underdeveloped view of money in the kingdom. And it's because I'm, I, I can just tell you, I'm afraid to talk about money with people. Um, it's an area of sensitivity with me. It's something that I'm not even fully sure why I'm hesitant to talk about money. And so you've been at Oikos for a year and a half, if, if you've been there from the beginning. We're a church plant for almost two years, and I've never preached on money. Now, a lot of preachers, it seems like they, that's all they want to preach about is money. I, I'm on like the opposite end of the spectrum. I have an underdeveloped view of money that the Lord has been working on me in. This past week, I got to be at a church planter's retreat, and I was kind of processing this with another planter. And he also has an underdeveloped view of money, it seems. And so we're, we were just talking about some of our reluctances and why and our timidity. And it is more timidity than humility and what the Lord is doing. And so I think he's doing two things in my life right now. And I want to share those with you. And it's not that he has already done them. It's that these are very much in process and these are directions that he's calling me into. The first one is to step away from financial stress on behalf of our church. I carry a lot of financial stress on behalf of our church, and it's just so stupid, as if God doesn't have it under control, as if we're not actually in a strong financial position. Those things are, are true, and yet I still am stressed about it. He wants me to step away from financial stress, and I think he wants me to step into visionary fundraising. Not, not for me, not for my family, not for even this church, but for the kingdom of God in Memphis to the ends of the earth. And so, I'm like creeping forward, and it just so happens that the Lord's been doing all this in the last couple of weeks, and this series has been planned for a year, and so it's like, all right, uh, Lord, would you speak today? Uh, I surrender, would you speak? Um, treasure in heaven. Do you know where your treasure is? We'll, we'll be kind of processing that, but I, I want to start marinating now, just like, which seeds are already there? Where's your treasure? Where's your joy? What's the rewards you're looking for, the satisfaction, the security, the significance? This is some of what we want to talk about today. Now, I have preached about um, money before at another church. It was about 15 years in my ministry where I just did a full series on mammon. And I realized that 15 years into my preaching ministry, I, there was one sin that had gone unconfessed. As, as a minister, I hear all kinds of sins. And you may be thinking, well, you hadn't heard mine. It's, no, I probably have. It's, people are really vulnerable. People are really broken. Preachers too. And so when preachers get together, we're confessing sins and we're sharing hard stuff. We're just really kind of areas of shame and embarrassment and brokenness. But do you know, 15 years into ministry, I had never heard the sin of greed confessed. Isn't it wonderful that no one in our culture is greedy? That we've just never had to deal with that problem in suburban, especially white churches. We just don't have a greed problem. You can confess sexual sin and addiction and porn. You can confess all kinds of brokenness and kind of dirty stuff in your heart. But I have never known someone to confess greed. Hmm. 
Now, I said that one time publicly, and then that week, boy, did they fill me up with their confessions of greed. So I can't say it anymore exactly. But even in this community, no one has ever confessed their sin of greed to me. Can I just start right there and confess my sin of greed, of searching for security in stuff and in investments, of like a, a hunger for more and of trying to grab on and trying to hold value as if it's going to hold its value? Can I just start there and just confess that I am a greedy person who has an underdeveloped view of money and I am searching for the, the way of the kingdom in this. But I, I, th- I think scripture, it teaches that money is, it's not just a me problem, it seems to be a we problem. That money has this hold like a secret sin. You know secret sin. Bonhoeffer, he, he tells it like this. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Do you see how it plays back on itself? Your sin keeps you from community, and then your shame keeps you from community. And so you end up just deeper in your sin, and it's hold, it's getting tighter and tighter. Sin wants to remain unknown, he says. It shuns the light. In, in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. He's talking about any kind of sin, but if, if the sin of greed has always gone silent, then what is the potential hold of this snare? First Timothy, Paul says it like this in chapter 6. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. It's a snare. It holds on to them. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And yet, when we talk about money, we sound a lot like, you know, Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. He says, if money is a curse, then may I be smitten with it and never recover. (laughs) It's like we still want it, even though we know it poisons everything. It's interesting that it's the silent snare in some ways, but Jesus wasn't silent about money. The the scriptures have over 2,000 verses about money. Money is the issue in the Gospels. Two scholars, they say nothing in the Gospels is more of a matter of ethical and theological concern than wealth. Every other moral consideration pales in comparison. And so despite Jesus' teaching, we're still like blind and, and we're silent to this deadly sin. So how did we get here? Today I want to tell you Mammon, an American story, and then we'll look at Mammon, uh, really the, the Jesus story. So just imagine back a couple of generations, like to your grandparents or great-grandparents, maybe to your mom and dad, but I don't think we have any greatest generation here today. Greatest generation are those people who kind of came of age in the Great Depression, 1920s. The Great Depression, they are marked by frugality. They are marked by hard work and devotion. How do we go from a generation marked by frugality and scarcity to the current generation that is marked by overconsumption and abundance? Well, the the story involves a lot of what happened in the Great Depression and World War II. Those wounds of scarcity sunk in deep. And then in World War II, 
we started developing in our country as the rest of the world is bombed out and their manufacturing is destroyed. The American manufacturing system is booming. And so after the war, those American manufacturing plants become commercialized rather than militarized. And there's some major shifts that start happening in our, in our culture. So we come back from the war and the political leaders, as well as marketing leaders, business people and powerful politicians, they get together and they have big meetings and they call this the principle of growth. And concerningly, growth is a capital G. <laughs> and so what they're saying is we just need more stuff. We need more of it. If our culture is going to become globally dominant on a consumer level, here's the, the, the playbook for it. And so in the President's Materials Policy Commission, they set out the core belief that first we share the belief of the American people in the principle of growth with ever more luxurious standards of consumption. So they say, we know what will satisfy us more. And all the people that are listening to this say, wait, did you just say satisfy more? More won't satisfy. And they're like, no, if you get enough, it will. And then if you get more, it will. And the point even isn't even to get satisfied. It's just to have more. And so there's four shifts that start happening in the post-war era. The first one is a population shift. You know, this is called the baby boom. People come back from war, and there's this huge uptick in birth rates with men coming back and men and women coming together and and then they have children, and they're booming with babies. There's so many more people, and more people means more people in the workforce, but that's not enough. There's also a workforce shift that started happening. You remember Rosie Riveter. You see, there's a shift in the workforce where it's not just men who go off to work. Now, because the men are off to war, women go off to work. And so, in the post-war period, you don't really need this, but it's good for money and economics, so we need men and women and everyone working. Not only do we need more people working, we need them working more hours. And so the typical six-hour work week expands hugely. I mean, the people known for their work ethic in the 1920s and 1930s were working six-hour shifts. Now, many of you are working 12-hour shifts. There's a work force shifts, a labor shift, but there's also a debt shift. We have more people making more money, working more hours, and it's still not enough. We need more money, even money that we don't have. Look at consumer debt. It goes from basically zero in the 1940s to $19.6 trillion in our country. There's this explosion in money we don't even have. Consumer debt gets cheaper and cheaper, and that certainly fluctuates terms of its pricing. And so then we end up working more, more people working so that we can have, what, more debt? But there's one final shift, and this is the consumption shift. You see, how do you sustain just this more work, more hours, more debt? Well, you get more stuff as the payoff. One of the, the phrases here is planned obsolescence, planned obsolescence. And so it's this intentional strategy by manufacturers and marketers to make things that don't last, to make things that are designed to break down on a physical level. They will not last. We have, I mean, there's a water bottle right there, a planned obsolescence. It's just one-time use of things that 
certainly could be used. It's all over the place, but more so, it's a planned obsolescence of the mind. And so the latest trend, you walk into a house and you're like, well, that's dated. Let's tear everything out and rebuild. And it's like, well, it was all functional. It doesn't matter. There's a plan. I don't, it doesn't satisfy in, in the same way. I just need more. This planned obsolescence, retail analyst Victor Lebeau, he says, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. When the business leaders and the politicians get together, this is what they're planning. And so why would Americans do this? Why would we have more people working more hours only to take on more debt in order to buy more things that we know are existentially unsatisfying and going to break down? I'm glad you asked. This is because of the rise of PR and advertising. Now, if you're in PR and advertising, just hold on for a second. Bless you in the name of the Father and the Son Spirit. Okay. Um, have you guys heard of Sigmund Freud? Sigmund Freud has a nephew named Edward Bernays. And Bernays talks with his uncle and he learns like this, this hunger of human desire. And he says, there are these desires that are going hidden. They're repressed. And what we have to do in his book, famous 1928 book, Propaganda, what we have to do is get people to feel good about those desires that they once felt bad about. We need them pursuing more stuff so they can feel more important. He says, and we have a plan for how to do this on a political level and on a marketing level. He is one of the fathers of the modern PR system. And he's taking psychological insights about desire and he's putting them on a on just at scale in our country. So this comes in, have you guys seen Mad Men? This is like the rise of the admin in Manhattan. And so Vance Packard, he's describing the 1950s admin. He says, this is the game to make the luxuries of the upper classes the necessities of all classes. By striving to buy the product, the consumer is made to feel like he is upgrading himself socially. You need more stuff and you need more stuff to become more. Bernays, he put it like this, a thing may be desired not for its intrinsic worth or usefulness, but because he has unconsciously come to see it in a symbol of something else, the desire for which he is ashamed to admit to himself because it's a symbol of social position and evidence of his success. We don't actually want this stuff. We want the significance that comes from having this stuff from being the trendy man or the trendy woman, of having the house that's all put together, or driving the nice car. We don't want the stuff. We have got a vehicle, but we want to be somebody. And so this, the PR and advertising starts tying into radio, or for the first time, radio gave interested corporations unprecedented access to the inner sanctums of the public mind, to use the language of one scholar. And then TV made visual what radio was capturing in the mind, and it became this perfect storm. This is the propaganda of mammon. A quest for goods is the ultimate satisfaction that ironically remains insatiable. This is the game, to use the language of the PR experts, to make you think that you need stuff, to turn things into necessities, 
and then con- turn consumption into the feeling of significance. And the truth is, this, this is all a lie. Jesus said, this is the great enemy of the soul. This is God's main rival for the throne in your life. And so before we even get into the text, we need to know that this is not normal. Historically speaking, we are the wealthy. Even our poor are globally wealthy in comparison to what's going on in the world. This is not normal. There are 1.2 billion people today who live on less than $1.50 a day. $1.50. I mean, just think of what that means that you don't have. And then there's another billion point two people who live on less than $3 a day. A third of the world is barely eating today. This is not normal. Historically, this is not normal. This is something that has happened and exploded within our lifetimes and the lifetimes of to the third and the fourth generation. And this is not good. That's not to say, that's not to say that the global capitalist kind of project hasn't elevated poverty globally. There's actually more people getting out of poverty in the last 10 years than in like some of whole eras of human history. There's more people being fed. There, There are good things, but this is not good for our souls. Even the good that comes becomes an excuse for not surrendering to God's kingdom over mammon. We can rationalize it away. But I think we know Jesus, when he's describing money, he describes it as the greatest competitor for life in the kingdom, for the throne of God in your life. So is there someone else besides the admin? Ron Sider, in his book, he says that this consumption and wealth and luxuries, he says this is the God of the 21st century and the ad man is his prophet. Is there another prophet that we can listen to that might actually have the truth to expose the lies of mammon in our culture? To stop the silence and the snares and to break free into a greater freedom. Life in the kingdom, true treasure that doesn't fade. There is. Let's dive into Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll be in verses 19 through 34 today. I've got three points with some subpoints, and we'll just kind of walk through the text. The first point is about Mammon's deceptive promises. Mammon promises a lot, but it never delivers. It always overpromises and underdelivers. This is how Jesus describes it. He says, "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth." That store up for yourselves is like literally it's making treasure for yourself. Don't don't treasure things for yourself. Treasures on earth, here's the reason, because moth and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. Do you see that there's this corruption that happens? The other day I went into my attic. I was looking for some hunting clothes, I think. We were about to take a family trip to see my, my dad's new land. And I got out this really great camouflage hunting blanket and it just had holes all in it from the rats that are living in my attic. It's like, what can last? The things that you hold on to and you put in boxes and you store away, and then you open them up, and it's like, well, I didn't realize that was broken. I didn't realize the rats had gotten into this. I didn't realize that the water had damaged it. 
It's like, what is untouchable? He says, nothing in in this whole earthly realm is untouchable to the decay and the destruction and to the theft. Instead, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. This is God's like safety deposit box. It's the only one that actually provides security because moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart, your character, your true self. He says, the thing, follow the money. Where you're spending your money is a great revelation of where your heart is. He says, and where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So can I just make a few observations here, just somewhat quickly, about the empty promises, the over-promises that under-deliver every time when it comes to mammon. The, the first promise is that mammon promises satisfaction. Satisfaction is like, I, I'm going to be happy. Mammon says that stuff will make you happy, that more stuff will make you happy, that nicer stuff will make you happy, that, that your property, your wealth that your money is going to make you happy. I will give you pleasure. I will give you satisfaction. But the problem with satisfaction is that it always overpromises and underdelivers because in order to be satisfied, you always need more. And more is always unsatisfied. The richest man in the world, Rockefeller, when he's asked how, how much money until you're, until you're satisfied, he says, just a little bit more. And then the more you feed the unhealthy appetite, the more it grows. And so the more you feed it, the less satisfied you actually are. And now you're hungry and hungry for more. You want more, so you buy more, so you work more. And then as it so happens, you end up enjoying it less. We will literally get it now and pay for it later with interest. And not enjoy it because we have to work more to pay off the debt. It's like mammon is over-promising satisfaction. It isn't giving you the thing you're looking for. We have more money, more disposable income, more square footage, more conveniences, more wealth and possessions than any civilization in history. And as a result, we are the most satisfied, happiest country that's ever been, right? Of course, this isn't true. We have significant levels of anxiety and depression and deaths of despair. So what we're seeing is that in the pursuit of satisfaction, we see family that's placed on the altar of mammon. And it's preteens and teens from affluent backgrounds who are enduring this at the highest rates. They have the highest rates of anxiety disorders, of substance abuse, of unhappiness, of depression, of other somatic issues. This is not good. It's under, it's under delivering on its promises. Tim Keller says, he says, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. But it doesn't give you what it promises. Second way it doesn't give you what it promises is security. Security is, if the first one's like pleasure, this one's like safety. I'll give you control. You don't have to worry. I just need to save a little bit more. And so there's this asteroid that's going to come and hit Earth, or there's going to be this heat death of the sun. There's going to be this cataclysmic disaster. There's going to be this cancer diagnosis. There's going to be a a car accident. And do you know what? Your 401k will not stop it. It can't deliver on what it promises. Jeff Bezos may be the richest man in the world, but he's still working. 
His family is fractured. And he's going to meet Jesus face to face and answer. You think he has security? One author, he says, our money lies to us constantly. Whenever we see our accumulation of assets or the increasing dollars in our account, mammon whispers to us, I am your security. I am your hope. I make the good life possible. And it's a lie that it doesn't ever deliver on. Third way that mammon promises, over-promises and under-delivers is in terms of significance. I will make you good. I will make you somebody. I will make you important. I will give you meaning. They will no longer overlook you. You will be somebody. The new title, the new raise. Then I'll know that I'm somebody. I just need a little bit more. But it never works like that. Have you ever played one of those apps where you're like a fish that's eating other fish? And then you grow and you get bigger? All right, one guy has. Nobody else knows what I'm talking about? And then you grow and get bigger and you can eat other bigger fish. But th the thing that happens in the game is the same thing that happens in life. Every, every time you grow, every time you take a step up, every time you get a raise or a new title or a new job or a new house, you just look around and you're still the smallest fish in the pond. You still see somebody else who's there ahead of you. You still feel small. Mammon can't deliver on the promise of significance. There's always a nicer car. There's always a better house. There's always a higher title with more prestige and significance. And you jump from one pond to the next pond to the next pond, and there's a bigger fish in every pond. But Jesus says, I've got eternal promises, not empty promises. I've got treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. You want treasure in heaven? He says it looks like an inheritance. They're gifts. They're not earned. They're not grasped. They're not seized. At the last day, you stand before a father who loves you, and he says, this is your inheritance because of what I have done. It's inheriting eternal life in Matthew 19. It's entering the master's joy. It's not even yours. It's shared. And it says it's secure. It's actually kept in the heavenly lockbox. You don't have to worry. And it's not just that you're going to heaven. It's that heaven's coming down, but it's kept secure there in God's space until heaven and earth merge fully. And you can think, well, I'm, I'm doing this for the next generation. I'm doing this for my kids. Luther, he warns. He says, see to it that greed does not take you in with a sweet suggestion and lovely deception like this, that you intend to advance yourself or your children into a higher social position. The more you get, the more you'll want. And you will always be aiming for something higher and better. And no one is satisfied with his position in life. But the Lord says, I will give you an inheritance for a thousand generations. This is not something that you can achieve on your own. See, the empty promises, the deceptive promises, it will not deliver. Second thing Jesus talks about as he's working through this topic of money in the Sermon on the Mount is what I'm calling mammon's deceptive power. Look at how he describes it. He says, the eye is the lamp. And this is a weird metaphor that often gets lost in translation. And so he says, the eye is the lamp. It's like the headlight. It shows you where you're going. It gives direction. It's the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So he says, the healthy eye is the one that is generous. The unhealthy eye is the one that is greedy. And he says, when you have greed, when you have a light that's shining in the wrong place, it has a destructive power in your life. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Let me illustrate with this dude. Don't you just hate him when you see him? 
It's like, how did he become this? You know how he became this, my precious. He made something his treasure, and then he didn't realize it, but the treasure was asking him to do things that were pulling him away, that, that stirred this murderous vengefulness in his heart, that sent him down into darkness and into the cave. He didn't want all of that, but his focus on this just, it made him make all of these, it had this control, this power that he didn't mean to give to it that steered him into a darkness of soul and of life, away from everyone, and then over-promised and under-delivered. All right, let's get that picture off the screen. That's awful. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. I was reading one commentary, uh, Richard France, and he says, this is just patently untrue. We do it all the time. What are you talking about, Jesus? In what way can you actually not serve two masters? I mean, many of you are like a, a spouse and a son or a daughter. You go to work. You might even have two jobs. You can have two bosses. What is he talking about? There seems to be a particular threat of this relationship. You know, Jesus never says you can't serve God and Caesar. In fact, the Bible has a very nuanced view of political power. It'll say like, fear God, but yeah, honor the emperor. There are ways to serve both. But when it comes to mammon, Jesus says you cannot serve both. Because you'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one. You'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this word money is actually the Aramaic word mammon. Now, in the scriptures, whenever an Aramaic or another word is taken in, it's often because it's a proper name. So it seems an early Christian writer, early, early, started saying that this money isn't just money. It seems to be the spiritual force of evil. Mammon, as in a proper name, as in this false deity that wants to hold you captive. It says you cannot serve God and money. Now, it may be a proper name, but it refers to just your property, your stuff, your wealth, your possessions. It's not just cash. It's not just the money in the bank account. It's all of the accumulation. It's the excess accumulation and the desire for more of it. That's what is mammon. Mammon has a hold. There's a couple of ways that this, this mammon seems to hold. Let me just share three. The first one is that it is, gives a distortion or a deception when it comes to God. Peter Kreft, he says, Mammon is, or rather falsely promises to be, a security blanket against change. It apes divine self-sufficiency that I can do it all. It's a natural, he says, it's natural to man to desire external things as means, but mammon makes them into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. So what scholars say is that the relentless pursuit of money and possessions is equivalent to the worship of a pseudo-deity. It twists who God is, makes you forget who God is, and then whether you know it or not, as you're accumulating stuff and more, you're bowing down to the God mammon. Second distortion is that it distorts grace. I think mammon, just in its essence, is a resistance to the idea of grace. It's, it teaches you this lie that what you have, you earned. And what others have or don't have, they earned. And so mammon, when you see the world through the lens of mammon, lets you look down on rich people. And it lets you look down on poor people. 
And it says that you only have that because you were corrupt and greedy. And it says that you only have that because you were lazy and slothful. And I have what I have because I earned it. it it's a total distortion at every level. In fact, in, in Scripture, there's never a, a godly, wealthy person who's condemned. And there's never an ungodly, poor person who's exalted. It, it's not totally illuminated about who you actually are. You can be wealthy and be a recipient of God's grace. In fact, that may be the only way to be wealthy. And you can be wealthy and be desperately poor. I mean, uh, you can be filled with grace and you can be blessed and be desperately poor. And so mammon distorts grace. I was reading from an African scholar. And he says the fact that the majority of, of Africans are materially poor doesn't mean that we're free from materialism. Many of us long for the material comforts. One of Africa's problems is the encouragement of Western patterns of consumption with the economic, without the economic discipline to achieve them. This longing for material riches fuels the preaching of a prosperity gospel in many parts of Africa. It distorts the gospel. It distorts grace. It makes it seem like stuff is what God actually wants to give you, when in reality, God wants to give you himself in Jesus Christ. Many times you have to surrender in order to receive this gift. You have to sell all that you have and give it to the poor before you can actually follow him. We'll talk more about that in two weeks. Mammon finally distorts persons. Jermaine, I loved what you said at the table. It's like, why are we pursuing when he is preparing? Because it, it's a distortion of personhood. It's a distortion of relationships and love. Money promises power without relationship. Money gives you abundance without dependence. One of my favorite authors, he has a chapter on mammon. And he says, they say... A friend is somebody who will help you move. And a true friend is someone who will help you move a body. <laughs> I've never been there. <laughs> it took a second. But money means you don't actually have to have any friend. You can just pay somebody to help you move. You don't have to learn their names or their faces or their stories. Because it's, it's impersonal. It's abundance without dependence. It's... It's a transaction without love. It's not relational in any way. It's a thing, to use your language, instead of someone. The distinctive thing that money allows us, its most seductive promise is this kind of power that just pushes other people away. So the more time we spend in the world that money makes, the more we become conformed to its image. What God wishes, Andy Crouch says, is to put all things into the service of persons and ultimately to bring forth the flourishing of creation through the flourishing of persons. You want to make the world a better place? You invest in people and love and relationships. He says, but mammon wants to put all persons into the service of things and ultimately to bring about the exploitation of all creation. Final move here is what Jesus goes to in verses 25 through 34. I'm calling this section the Father's real love. If the others are empty promises, if they are deceptions and distortions, this is the real stuff. Listen up. Verse 25 starts with therefore. Have you ever noticed this section on worry is actually, it, it is logically, in Jesus' mind, logically connected to your view of money. This, this whole section on anxiety, on worry, flows out of you cannot serve God and money. Therefore, 
don't worry. Because if you're serving God, he's going to get you. He says, I tell you, don't worry. Don't worry. Now, one clarification here. We'll have another clarification in just a second. The first clarification is that clinical anxiety is a different thing than worry. And there, there is some overlap there in, in that Venn diagram. But the way that Matthew uses this language of worry is of somebody who's not fully trusting in God. It's like when, when Peter's walking on the water, it uses this word worry whenever he started to sink. He just took his eyes off Jesus. That's, that's what it's talking about here. It's when you take your eyes off your good father who loves you, that's when we start being filled with worry. He says, don't worry about what? About your life. What does he mean by life? This is the word suke. He means what you will eat or drink, like the thing that will sustain you. How many of us are so worried about food? It's like, we got Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, and all I can think about is what we're going to eat. And Jesus is like, stop worrying about that stuff. That's not where the meaning of life is. Don't worry about your body, about what you'll wear. How many of us are consumed by fashion trends and having the latest things and just making sure we're kind of put together? We're wearing the Oikos uniform, which I think is an Oikos shirt, maybe with a flannel shirt over it. Is that right? Okay. He's like, what are, you, what are you doing? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Second clarification is that Jesus is actually saying, I'm against worry, not work. So whenever he says, don't sow or reap or store away in barns, he uses an illustration of an animal, a sparrow, that is very active. <laughs> It is, it's constantly eating and gathering, and it, it is doing, and so most Christian scholars and commentators throughout history are saying, he's not encouraging laziness here, all right? Clarification, the market is red. And yet, your heavenly Father, he feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? More valuable than an animal. I think some of our families need to kind of remember this lesson, that there are people who are hungry, and we're spending, in many cases, more on chicken feed and dog food than we are on helping the homeless in our own city. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field, how they grow. They don't labor or spend. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, God clothes them which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will I not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Some of you are already thinking that about what you're going to eat after this. What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after these things. That's their full meaning of life. And he says, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So, verse 33, the big one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. This is literally the same word that he was just using for the pagans run. He says, I want you to run too. I'm not asking you to stand still. I want you to go all after it. He's redeeming ambition for the kingdom of God. What would it look like to walk in righteousness? He says, it looks like giving away your money to the poor. It looks like opening your hands and getting rid of your mammon. It looks like sharing. The most concrete, Bruner says, the most concrete, practical way to have treasure in heaven is to make the life move of economic divestment 
for the sake of investment in the poor. It's a shift in acquisition strategies from earth to heaven. Jesus, again, we'll talk about this in two weeks. He tells the rich man to sell all he has and give it to the poor because this is righteousness. It's a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. It is spiritual. It's a gift of the gospel. It is social in community. It is political, and here it is financial. And so he says, run after righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Whatever it costs, go for righteousness. So that on that last day, you'll be able to hear from your father, my good and faithful servant. He says, go, run, go, seek, chase it. But then he says, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Can we just all say amen to that last line? Life has trouble. The Lord knows that. But here's just a few reminders very quickly in this section. The Lord feeds you. The Lord clothes you. The Lord values you. The Lord knows you. It's saying that his love, his care is solid. It is a rock. It's a foundation. It is, it is a cornerstone that you can build your life on. All the other stuff, it, it, it's fleeting. It's over-promising, under-delivering. He says, but this one. It's almost like he's under-promising and over-delivering. You can't even see all the ways he's doing it, and yet he's feeding you and clothing you and valuing you and seeing you. And so don't worry. Chase after him. I want to give just four practical suggestions um, somewhat quickly here. First one is in the vein of confession. This is an invitation for you to interrogate your vision of life. That if you're after stuff and after accumulation, if you're after wealth, just really check your heart and where your treasure is. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. Is it your children? Is it your clothes? Is it your appetite? Is it your car, your appearance, your retirement? Interrogate your vision of life. Second, this is in the vein of gratitude. Give thanks for your life. There's nothing that dethrones mammon like saying thank you for what you actually have. This is enough. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. How? How? It says, by everything in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You give thanks in order to find contentment. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Third vein, confession, gratitude, this is generosity. Give away that which is not life. Give away that which is not life. Whenever Jesus talks about storing it up, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures on earth. There are a lot of teachers like Buddha who just say, stop desiring. That's not Jesus' message. Jesus says, store it up for righteousness. Store it up for the kingdom. Give it away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, on the first day of the week, he uses this same word. I want you to store up and lay aside and give it to the work of the kingdom so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. When you're saving it up, you're storing it up for something else, for treasure in heaven. I want to commend to you what's called a graduated tithe. You know what a tithe is? Tithe is where you give 10%. But the truth is, in our culture of such mass accumulation of wealth and property, that 10% may just not be quite enough. 
Now, 10%, this is graduated tithe from Ron Sider. He says, it's one of many models. This is not God's law. This is not teaching. This is just a way to try to live in wisdom, recognizing that wisdom is, is more precious than pearls. It is, it's more costly than gold or silver. He says, this is true wisdom. He says, this isn't a, a biblical norm. It's not to pres- be prescribed legalistically, but listen up. He says, we try to give 10% on a base figure that includes like what it takes to survive plus assistance to family plus genuine emergencies. And then on top of that, he has a tiered structure where you're basically increasing a percentage point or two for every kind of jump in income. A graduated tithe means that you, you give 10% on what you need and then you start giving 15% on what you don't even need. And then you start giving 25% on like the extra, extra. It's just a suggestion, okay? But can I also just ask you once more to contemplate gifts for Giving Sunday, December 10th? Um, our, church, our church is currently funded on the basis of your weekly gifts along with the gifts of other churches who we have fundraised and asked them for their help and their support. And so in order to move from support on other people's generosity, our people have to step up into generosity in order to cover the ministry that we're called to and what we're doing here together. And I think this is a worthwhile investment. This is something that my family is investing in in every way. And it's something that my family has just been just tremendously blessed by. I think that Oikos Church is a worthy investment of your finances because it's gospel sin. It's actually bringing Jesus into everything that we're doing. And the things that we're doing are trying to provide deep transformation on a soul and a heart level to people. Did you guys know we have almost 60 freedom prayer times that we've led in the last year? where people are spending hours with our teams and they're pouring themselves out, where they're, they're actually finding freedom and healing from the, the power of God. He's just setting people free. Do you know that our, our ministry team is it's totally supported by you? That my family, I mean, Kelsey works here part-time, about a day a week. I work here full-time. And you are the reason that we can do this work. It's not like somebody else is paying or you're the ones carrying us. Now, I'm not saying like I'm worth it. I don't know on that. That's, I guess, for other people to decide. But I am so honored and I'm, I'm so grateful uh, to be able to get to do this and get to do it with my wife and get to do what I've described over and over at this retreat last week as the most fun and most fulfilling time of my life in ministry. It is such a gift, such an honor. Okay. Last move is transparency. All right, I'm calling this open up your life to others. Andy Crouch, he points this out. He says, we'll, we'll share all the stuff when it comes to personal sin, secret sin. He says, but he and his wife have this practice of sharing their finances with other people too, that they're in relationship. He says, they will, they will give real numbers, not only of income, but also of assets. And then they will share what they're doing with those things. He says, every time that we do this, people say, I have never, ever heard a fellow Christian outside a confidential fiduciary relationship tell me how much they have and how much they make. He says, brothers, sisters, this should not be so. 
the secrecy we have around these numbers, which are the most immaterial thing about our lives, is a sign that mammon has its grip on us. A very powerful way to detox is to open up our books. He says, not in a willy-nilly way. We just share with anybody and everybody. Not severed from relationship. And he says, why is this not a normal in the Christian community? He says, because we are trying to serve God and mammon. Kelsey and I, I have to say, have not stepped into this yet. We are discerning who that needs to be. But we fully intend to open up our books with some wise counselors. And what I think will happen is that it will grant me and Kelsey a measure of confidence in terms of our discernment about what, is, what God is doing in our life. And I think it will bring in not just confidence, but a challenge. That if, if I have to answer to my brothers and sisters who I know and love and trust, but, but brothers and sisters, we will answer before Jesus Christ who, who gave up everything. If you can't answer to a brother or a sister who, who just totally understands you and gets you, how, where's the confidence and the challenge that we need? So could you just consider transparency? Sharing with somebody. What's coming in, what's going out, where your assets are and what you're doing with them. Not as a way of doing self-promotion. Jesus warns against giving in public ways to make your piety be seen by others. He says that, that kind of gift, you have your reward and there's no other. But I'm, I'm talking about in a secret, confidential, um, transparent way. Can you pursue this? All right, let's just close with a reflection on inheritance. All right. Man, can you guys imagine if there was like some stranger that you knew who, who promised you, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you wealth untold. I'm worth billions, and I've written you into my will. Don't you think that would change how you invested? Man, you, the day that guy died, and they would, the attorney calls you, whoever's like over the estate, and he says, I want you to know your name's in this will. We need you here at this meeting. Don't you think you would like drop everything and go after that? Jesus is saying, like, that, that's what's happening here. That there, there's this in, inheritance that you're an heir of somebody who has everything. And he says, there's this treasure that's waiting in heaven, and I want you to experience it and to enjoy it. You're trying to lock up your finances for your generation or at best to the third and the fourth generation. He says, I want to bless you to the thousandth generation. What will you give up to receive this blessing? What will you give up to be at the meeting? He says, I've got the gift for you. It's going to be worth it. Eternal life in the presence of God with his people and his family. All right, would you stand? Let me, let me pray. God, would you make our church generous as you are generous and would you illuminate our hearts where we need to repent of our pursuit of mammon? And Lord, would you lead us in wisdom and stewardship into, um, into the work of the kingdom that you are calling us to in this city? In all of this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.